0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 1345, and we are going to return to our fishing series of shows. Today we're going to talk about fishing the surf and fishing in, on piers. We'll talk a little bit also about brackish water, bays, and brackish water rivers. Uh, fishing piers in addition to just wading and fishing the surf. Uh, basically saltwater fishing for those of us without big boats that can take us out in the middle of the ocean or even without uh, bay runners that can take us back into the backwaters. People that are pretty much confined to the use of their feet. Um, and all of the cool things that you can still do in that situation. I like to talk about fishing because, number one, it puts you in a position where you're kind of, you have to be a little self-sufficient at least for a while, so that lets you test some knowledge and things, and when you go surf fishing, uh, you're surrounded by water, but none of it's fresh, and that that alone puts you in a situation where you need to have additional gear. Um, Fishing, when done right, instead of done as a way to to need a second mortgage on your home, actually can be quite beneficial to uh, putting food on the table. And it's a lot of fun, and it, it is another skill set to develop. So I certainly think it's part of modern survivalism. Uh, before I get into that today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Whenever I am in a situation where I need to do something a little bit corrective, let's say for aches or pains or if I'm having trouble sleeping or I just need to relax a little bit, I always go to herbs before I go to pharmaceuticals. I've done that for a long time. I've never regretted the decision. If I have some kind of acre pain that I can't deal with, uh, with something like Western Botanicals, uh, anti inflammatory, which is mostly made of turmeric, or their pain relief formula, which includes valerian, among other things, um, then maybe, you know, maybe I'll take a Tylenol or an Advil, but it's very rare that I do that. Um, herbals just, to me, are a safer, more gentle way to correct things wrong with our, our body. And I believe that as we are part of this planet, uh, the planet has given us everything we need to see to our health, and herbs is one of the ways we can do that. If you want the best advice you can get on herbals and the best quality herbals you can get, you want them all either organically grown or wildcrafted, go to Western Botanicals. If it's herbal and it's legal, uh, you can find it at Western Botanicals. I'll leave it to you at that. And they're real people that really care. If you need some help, give them a call, and uh, they'll be happy to take your call and do what they can to help you. Anyway, next up today, uh, we have sponsor day number two and that is um, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is amazing. He's not only part of our expert council, but he's a prepper in addition to all that, living now in the wilds of Montana. He's just a really great guy, and he'll help you learn how to make cooking into a life skill. And if you don't think cooking... Is a valid prepper skill. You have never lived on MREs for six months like I did at one time in my life. Cooking is amazing, and I talk about all kinds of awesome things that you can grow in your garden. Some of the stuff you don't find on supermarket shelves. You get over to Chef Keith's site, you'll learn how to cook with that stuff too. You want to learn how to cook seasonally and locally and make great food? Check out Harvest Eating. Check out also Keith's podcast, his YouTube channel, Uh, and his extensive line of seasonings. Uh, Keith is just an awesome guy again dot HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's uh, remind you guys about the Members Support Brigade. The Members Support Brigade, or MSB as we call it around here, is the way that I actually make money off of this show. The sponsorships, I don't charge really very much for. I've been very loyal to the sponsors. Most of them have been with us for more than four years at this point. Several have been with us for more than five years. I think I've raised rates over five years twice So I've kept my rates on my sponsors very low. I try to make the sponsors that we have on this show more of a service to the audience than a revenue stream. And the way I do that is through a premium membership program where those that just want to support the show can do so. And those that would like access to discounts from our sponsors and from other companies can acquire those. The discounts are such that the membership pays for itself. That's how I've built the revenue model of this show from day one so that I knew that customers could become my customers directly, do business with me, and get their money back. And I believe that is a very, very good way to do business. And I ask you to check out the Member Support Brigade if you're not a member already. Uh, A lot of you guys recently have had your memberships canceled due to uh, renewal issues with PayPal. I think in many instances it's because uh, people have had just credit cards that are backing their PayPal account expire. When you change your method of PayPal... Uh, payment PayPal will cancel all recurring subscriptions. And there's nothing I can do on my end. If that's happened to you recently, you can log into your account and add a new subscription. If you've gone away, I'd love to have you back. Um, if there's anything I can do to win you back, let me know and I'll give it a shot. If you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps active due to your prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, I do give you a discount on that program. You email me before, not after you join. Because if you do it after you join, it's a real pain in the neck. And I'm going to tell you, you have to wait till renewal. Uh, and I give you a discount code. This discount is so good, I don't even publish what it is. But it's to thank you for your service, either at home or abroad. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show again. We are talking today about surf fishing. Fishing in salt water or brackish water. Also a little bit about fishing from piers. Um, to me... The beach is an awesome place to fish. When Dorothy and I go to the beach, the beach for her is a place to walk, pick up seashells, and sit around and do nothing. That's that's her entire agenda on the beach. Maybe read a book. That's it. Um, and I enjoy that, especially if i got a Jimmy Buffett-approved drink in my hand, you know, toes in the water, ass in the sand kind of thing going on. I love that. But I love to fish the shore. And there's an excitement about shore and pier fishing and brackish water fishing to me that just doesn't exist in a lake or river. Um, I love river fishing. If you, you know, I did recently a show on fishing rivers and streams, and in some ways, it's my favorite type of fishing. It really is. Um, there's a peacefulness to it. There's a consistency to it. You know, you don't ever end up. You know, in, in situations. Well, I guess you do with high water, but it's real predictable when you're going to end up with high water. Sometimes you're out surf fishing and the water's perfect and beautiful and, and some storm kicks up offshore that you didn't know was coming. And the next thing you know, you're in turbid chocolate milk water. Uh, and the fishing kind of goes downhill. And we'll talk about how to try to avoid that, you know, when you're taking your time to go out, uh, and what you could do if it happens a little bit more today. But, um, river fishing just has this peaceful, this to it, and as you get in, you know, to where you can either wade a river and get away from the access points or get in a boat and get away from the access points, it really gets peaceful. And there's a peacefulness to the ocean too, but not quite the same. But what makes the ocean so special to me is the never know what you're going to catch factor, no matter what you're doing or how you're fishing. Uh, and I've seen this play out many times in many different ways. You can target specific species. As I talked about in my uh, initial uh, podcast in this series, where I talk about all the gear, and if you haven't listened to that one, I'd recommend maybe you do before you listen to the rest of this one. Uh, you don't really have to listen to the rivers one. They really don't tie together. But the gear episode, if you, especially if you're new to fishing or not totally up to speed on different gear, options might be helpful, especially when I get into the gear I use for fishing on the beach. But... I mean, again, let me give you the list of fish that I caught while I was in Sanibel. We were there for 10 days, but only five of them were probably really good fishing days. Uh, during that time, I caught Spanish mackerel, permit, snook, ladyfish, whiting, uh, two different types of ocean-going catfish, uh, Jack Cravel, blue runner, speckled sea trout, and I'm leaving out some odd stuff like little bait fish that I managed to catch like pig fish and pinfish and stuff like that. There's like a dozen right there, and there's more than that. Um, other little things that you end up like, why is this little thing on my line? I mean, I've in that same area, not on this trip, but I've caught mangrove snappers. Uh, I've caught small grouper. I've caught all kinds of things. I've caught the occasional shark. Uh, I've caught stingrays, uh, while I was fishing in Sanibel, uh, a huge school of, uh, cow nose rays, which are a type of stingray, uh, came through and, uh, there were thousands of them without exaggeration, thousands. At one point when they came through, uh, the water was so clear, you could just see like a black cloud of them, and you could look up the beach and down the beach, and you couldn't see the end. You, you ran out of the ability to see uh, just from you know your, your ability to perceive that far away, from distance, before you actually saw the cloud go away. There had to be, probably in that one school, probably 10,000 of these things. At one point when I was fishing and landing a fish, I looked around me, and I had cow nose rays, you're just basically coming straight at my legs and just splitting off and going around me. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about stingrays, various types of stingrays, and how to avoid being stung. But when they're swimming like that, they're really not likely to sting you at all. Uh, and they're not really a threat. And the best thing to do is just kind of chill and let them go around you. If you want to give them a little more incentive to go around you, put your rod in the water on the side they're approaching from, and it'll give them a little bit more clarity. Hey, something's here. Go around it. Um, but you don't get that in a river or a lake. You know, you don't go out and fish in, in, in a lake and and all of a sudden you're you're sitting there with a black tip shark or a great big redfish or something like that or a really big sea trout or, and, and, you know, you were out there and you're just jacking around, messing around with whiting and, and and whatever was biting and all of a sudden you've got this amazing, unexpected thing on your line. Uh, or just saying you're out fishing with dead bait and all of a sudden you hook into a a 6 or 8 pound jack. And, and and a 6 or 8 pound jack fights like a 30 pound fish. It, they're just incredibly strong fish. And they're just built for power. Th- that is one of the big things that I like about fishing the ocean. You just don't know what's going what's gonna to show up. Um, I fish the Texas coast more than Florida because, well, I live in Texas. The truth is I don't get out and fish the coast anywhere near as much as I should. And um, I, I really need to do it more. And I've talked about setting up a, a a fishing trip here in Texas, either down by like Bryan Beach or even maybe all the way down by Aransas Pass or something like that with some folks. You know, just kind of everybody show up on the beach, bring your gear, set up camp and hang out. Uh, Bryan Beach State Park might be a good place to do that. Probably better than Surfside. Uh, in Surfside, you get a lot more. Surfside Beach is just south west of Galveston. And uh the part of the beach they keep nice and clean and all, it really attracts a lot of local young kids and I've been out there and seen five or six different law enforcement agencies just driving up and down the beach harassing the kids. Um sometimes the kids need the harassment because they're doing dangerous things, but most of the time they're just harassing the kids to harass the kids. And that's why I don't generally like to fish there. Bryan Beach you seem to have a lot less of that. It is a state park, it's got a paid entry so that probably helps a bit by itself in just keeping the number of people that use it down um but i'd like to do that i have not caught the diversity in texas that i've caught in florida i've never caught a cobia in texas Uh, i've never caught a snook um i've gotten into the uh the trout a lot less frequently from shore Uh, if you take a boat or something there's more sea trout than you know what to do with down here i've gotten into the sand trout a lot more often in texas but there's a lot of stuff here i've caught small black tip sharks in texas one day I was down uh, in, in uh, actually down in Surfside Beach area, and it was time of the year when there weren't as many kids there. I was fishing with some guys I hooked up with on the Texas Fishing Forum, and uh, we were just slamming sand trout and whiting and various other stuff, and the water was turquoise. It looked like a picture of the Caribbean. And uh, we're out on the second bar, and I'll talk about bars and guts in a minute, we're out there fishing and we're kind of like on the sandbar and the sandbar you can be as shallow on this second sandbar as below your knee, and as you go further out it starts to get deeper so we'd wade it out to about where we're up to our thighs up to our waist level, and we're fishing and we're just slamming fish and like I said you can the water's just lapping it looks more like a lake than the ocean, and all of a sudden we just see this huge amount of bait fish go berserk and they're flying all over the place and You could see fish all in the water. I mean, you could just see fish everywhere, and all of a sudden they're gone. And we look to the right, and there he is, and he comes cruising by, and it was a bull shark. And that shark was eight foot long plus if he was an inch. I'd say he was probably three foot across the head. So if you were looking down at the top of his head, and the water was swelling a little bit in front of us, so he kind of cruised by in this clear swell at about eye level. And everybody just backed up a little bit till you were, like, below the knee. But nobody freaked out. We kept fishing, and he went cruising on. And he wasn't a big threat because nobody was stupid and fishing with five pounds of shrimp in their pocket. And uh, the water was clear, and it was daylight, and the fish could see what was going on. We could see him. He could see us. Most shark bites happen to fishermen when the water's murky near the evening or very early morning um, and with the fishermen doing something stupid. So... But that was cool. And you don't get to see a freaking bull shark cruise by in turquoise water at eye freaking level while you're standing in the water with them, which is a weird thing in of itself. It probably wasn't quite eye level, but it looked that way. It was probably more like chest level. But to see a fish almost encased in a water tube, maybe 10, 15 yards in front of you, cruise by like that, at that size, this is what I love. And I know that might freak some people out, but the reality is if you've ever sh- swam in the water, you, in the ocean, you've probably had sharks around you. They're just there. And they're just not the danger that they're made out to be. Now, a little bit of politics here. You're probably more likely to get bit by a shark than killed by a terrorist, uh, even though they don't have, uh, you know, infrared radiation scanners at the beach for the sharks. But um, but they're not likely to bite you. You're you're probably statistically, I'd have to look it up, but you're statistically probably more likely to be struck by lightning than bit by a shark. So that that tells you that it's not worth being stupid and being fearful about, but it's also, you know, use some common sense and we'll talk a little bit of safety as we go on. But that was very, very cool. I want to talk about my my basic gear. I'm going to go fast because I've covered a lot of this gear in the past. But the the thing that I see with ocean fishing is because of things like I just said. Everybody gets big in their head, right? The giant fish and the teeth, and oh, I gotta have this and that, and, and and all of a sudden they go out and they buy this rod that's like nine feet long, and you could beat like a pig to death with it. It's so damn thick and heavy, and they got fifty pound line on it, and a four ounce freaking triangle weight, uh, and a seven knot hook or something like that and uh and and it, because it's so oversized and because the person's not familiar with it, they take it out there and they uh, they heave it and it goes about fifteen twenty feet out there, and they finally get to where they can get it out there, you know twenty thirty yards. Uh, and, and rigged up a rod like that really can pitch a bait a hundred yards, but most people that are using it in ignorance don't know how to rig the rod up. So they end up with that and or they have this big shrimp rig for, for bottom fishing. It's really made like to drop over a boat or off straight down off a pier with a big weight on the bottom and two standoffs and they're fishing in current with that thing casted out and it's just wrapping up around the line. And it's just a mess. And here's the reality. Unless you're specifically targeting larger fish and you know how to and you know what you're doing, the average fish that you're going to catch when you're waiting is going to range from a quarter pound to three or four pounds. It's like fishing for bass, except the bass come in all different colors and shapes and sizes. And you might pick up a few 8, 10, 12-pound fish. And that means that the gear that you generally would use fishing in lakes Especially for things like, you know, moderate sized channel catfish, largemouth bass, trout work just fine. I use pretty much the same rod and reel setups in in lakes as I do in the ocean. Um, I just had somebody email me about this and and say, you know, how can I get into fishing stuff like this? What's what's some good stuff? And um, Academy Sports and Outdoors has some rods that sell for about $9. They have a six foot six medium and a six foot six like a medium light and a six or a seven foot medium action medium heavy action those two rods are are fine I'd step a little higher up than that but they'll work the modern Mitchell three hundred reel um, is is a really good open face spin casting reel for moderately sized smaller fish it's perfect um, I am currently really falling in love with a new rod that I have made by Browning it's Browning Safari um, I think it's a six foot, six inch rod or a seven foot rod, uh, medium light action. Um uh, it uh it breaks down into five pieces. It fits in a tube, it will fit in a standard suitcase. So when I travel, I don't have to pay extra ship or extra baggage to ship a rod. Um put a couple of reels in there and a couple of rods in there and, and I'm good to go. But just to give you that kind of feeling, I'm looking for rods that generally are designed to run eight to fourteen pound line. Medium light to medium action. Fast taper, good feel to it. Enough of a backbone that if I put a one-ounce sinker on there, it ain't just hanging over so I can I can whip that bait you know, out. And you can cast with a rod like that in a half-ounce to, to one-ounce weight, 80, 90 yards. I was trying to teach my wife how to cast rods like that, and I was showing her like an overhead cast because it's the easiest, but then I was just trying to show her it's really the rod and I would stand there and I'd hold my wrist, so my right arm is just out to my right side. My wrist is just so it's almost it's almost straight. So you're standing with your your head facing the way you're gonna cast, your your arms almost straight, your wrist is bent back almost as far as you can bend it back. You've got the line out, finger on the line, and then you just move your hand and just and I mean barely move the arm and just flip the wrist and let the tip of the rod, and that's why I like these lighter rods. That rod flexes, and, and, you know, I'm just doing that, moving my, my hand six inches. And that bait's going out 50 yards. And she was all frustrated because she just kind of cast the hell out of it. And that type of rod works really well. It's got enough backbone to handle fish that are 8, 10 pounds, especially in the ocean. Remember when I talked to my mother's show? The thing about fishing the surf where you're wading in, and you're not on a pier, and you don't have to lift a fish up or whatever, is you've got this amazing advantage when it comes to landing a fish. You don't need a net. You don't need a gaff. You play the fish out, and you start walking backwards if it's a big fish. And you you bring him up to the shoreline, and the waves come in, and the waves go out, and the waves come in, and the waves go out. When the fish is tired, the wave comes in. You drag him up onto the beach. The wave goes out. The fish is sitting on the beach. You pick your fish up. And I've landed snook that are 14, 16 pounds like that on 8-pound line. And, and a light action, you know, a light to light medium action rod. So that's that's why I stick with those rods. They're easy to cast, you get a lot of feel for them, and they make a lot of the smaller fish that you're going to catch in this type of fishing enjoyable. You know, reeling in a, a 10, 11, 12 inch whiting on a medium heavy surf rod is annoying. You're not sure if he's even there or not sometimes. That fish. On a medium light to, you know, action fast taper, uh, spinning rod will give you some enjoyment. And yet you can still handle the bigger fish that you're gonna come across. We'll talk about stepping up for sharks and, you know, when you're targeting them and larger redfish and stuff like that in a minute. But that works real well for me. I like to use snap swivels. I like to use snap swivels. Sometimes I'll tie double snap swivels onto my line. So I'll have a snap swivel at the terminal end which means the very end of the line, and I'll have one about a foot above that. When I do that, I can put my sinker on that that snap swivel that's about a foot back, and I can run a snell hook. A snell hook are the ones that come. They already have monofilament on them. They usually have about 8 to 12 inches of line. i got a hook on one end and a loop on the other. With those snap swivels, you can open the bottom snap swivel, the terminal end, and add that hook. Put it on. Put your weight back there. If you get into a point where you're catching fish, but you're missing and you're thinking I'm using too big of a hook, it's a couple seconds to pull out another snell, open a swivel, put it on. If you get into a situation where you feel like you've got too much weight or too little weight, it's a couple of seconds to open that swivel, put that weight on. That keeps the line in the water and less re-rigging and jacking around. Okay. If I'm going to be fishing with a lot of artificials, like if I'm going to know I'm going to want to be using artificials and bait, a lot of times I'll just bring a second rod that I'll have set up to run artificials on. That way there's always a rod just to go back to cut bait. So that's, that's the approach that I take like that. Um, as far as line, I usually don't use fluorocarbon, and I don't use braid. Uh, if I'm going to go to braid, it's because I'm targeting big fish. If I'm just surf fishing with my buddies and cooking out and enjoying my day on the beach, I stick with just good quality premium mono, like the Spider Wire premium mono is really great, or just good quality strand monofilament line. I'm generally fishing a 10- to 14-pound line, and usually I'm settling on 12. It seems to work really well for me. Um, As I go to a little bit lighter gear, sometimes I'll drop to 10 or even 8, but average, I'm fishing 10- to 14-pound good quality mono, not the cheap stuff that comes in a spool of like 1,000 yards for 5 bucks. I use bait casting sinkers is my number one type of weight. I try to have both the ones that look like, or three different kinds. The ones that look like sandbags, the ones that look like a disc, and the ones that look like a triangle. I usually try to have them from half ounce to two ounce, and it's very seldom I actually go up to a two ounce weight, but all of them in those. The reason is I like to use the lightest weight that will get the job done. The disc weights hold a little bit better than the sandbag weights <laughs> simply put and the triangular shaped weights hold better than the disc weights. So if I'm out and I'm fishing with a disc weight of an ounce and and I'm getting the I'm having a little bit more movement a little bit of hard time keeping the line taut where I can feel what's going on rather than go up to a heavier weight before I do that I'll reel that line in put a, a triangle type sinker on there that grabs the sand a little bit better and I'll try that and that's usually enough. And if if a one-ounce triangle sinker won't hold my line, uh, I'm probably going to be moving to fishing off a pier or I'm going to give up. Because that probably means the surf is too rough and I'm not going to be catching anything but catfish. And, you know, and they're probably not going to be nice ones either. Probably little pain in the ass ones. So when the water gets that rough and that turbid, unless I'm in a river or an inlet where you have channels and fast-moving water all the time, if I'm on the surf waiting on the beach, and that weight won't hold it down, I'm probably not throwing a two-ounce on. I'm probably going to get a beer. Because it just gets to a point where it's not worth doing, it doesn't mean I won't ever do it. If it's the only day I can go and it just turns out to be rough, I might still give it a shot, but I know I'm I'm fighting an uphill battle. My hooks, I'm generally using bait holder hooks from a number 2 up to a 4-aught, are the the primary sizes I use. If I have to go down to a 4 or a 6, and as the number goes up, the hooks get smaller. I'm probably dealing with fish that I don't really want to be catching. But I might do it just because they might make good bait. Um, four-aught is a pretty good size hook. It's about as big as I'm generally fishing this type of gear. Uh, my primary bait is going to be cut bait, shrimp, cut whiting, squid. Those are the three I use most. Shrimp and, and, and uh, squid you can usually buy. I'm not a huge fan of squid. It's something I'll use if I can't get shrimp. I'll tell you something that's going to sound bad to you, but it's true. Generally speaking, the smallest shrimp that you can buy to eat, okay, are the best shrimp for bait. The ones, and I don't mean a little bitty cocktail shrimp. I mean when you're buying like a live, not live shrimp, but whole shrimp or even headless shrimp, the ones that are large count per pound, um, generally, generally will work better for you. Then bait shrimp, they come in a bag and say bait shrimp on them and been in the freezer. If you can get fresh bait shrimp from a bait shop that's just, it's not ever been frozen, it's, it's great. And the smaller shrimps are good. What happens a lot of times, that shrimp's been frozen a very, very long time in those bait packets. And that it's like mushy and soft. It doesn't stay on well. But the shrimp that you might use to you know cook on the barbie, as the Aussies would say, is usually a little bit better. I prefer to use a bait shrimp. If I can get good quality bait shrimp, because it costs less and it's less expensive. But if nothing else, get a half a pound of shrimp from the grocery store. And that's your starter bait. Because if you're going to a place where you can catch whiting, you fillet a couple small whitings and you use cut whiting. And that works even better. It stays on great. The skin holds the, the flesh on. And I've caught a ton of fish on whiting. And I've been in situations where all you can seem to pick up on the shrimp are whiting, and you put on a piece of cut whiting, and all of a sudden you start picking up sand trout. And sand trout are a great fish. Um, and when they're running, they're thick. I mean, it's cast reel in, cast reel in, cast reel in. We've had times where we've filled big, giant, like 70-gallon uh, coolers of sand trout. We had one night on a pier where we were down in uh, Corpus Christi area where we had caught fish like that for two nights we had them all filleted and frozen and everything we went out for the one last night and we ended up with probably 80 90 pounds of sand trout and we all looked at each other and thought, nah, "I don't want to clean fish tonight." And uh, we we found this this Hispanic dude that was clearly there fishing for the uh for for the freezer, man. He was he was feeding his family. And uh, he had a pretty good little stringer of fish. And we said, "You like sand trout?" He goes, "Man, I love sand trout. I man, sometimes I've gone home with like almost a hundred of them." I'm like, "You want to go home with a hundred of them tonight?" And his eyes just got huge. We we're like, "As long as you'll unload this cooler, uh, and we don't have to do anything, you can have all these fish." And the dude was stoked, man. He and he left. He was like, "That's enough," and he he went home. So sand trout, I've often picked them up on cut bait, uh, cut whiting when they won't pick up shrimp. But I've caught just about everything on shrimp. I've caught mackerel on shrimp. I've caught trout on shrimp. I've caught redfish. And I'm talking about dead shrimp here. So it's why it's always my starting bait. If I'm going somewhere I can drive to, I always bring a cast net. Um, if you see running bait fish, you know, one throw and you can fill a bait bucket. I like to use live bait as well. I'll talk about that more in a bit. But uh, it's 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 really great when you can catch your own bait. And what I find is that fish like to eat what they swim with. And that means if you're using fresh bait from the water you're fishing, you're using what the fish are used to eating. When you move up to bigger gear, that's where you might go up into those surf rods. But I still find most of what I see is beyond what's necessary. Medium heavy to heavy action rods, 7 foot length rods usually are generally plenty uh, I still like a little bit of flex in the rod, a little bit bigger reel, just size of the reel to the rod. I like to stick with open face, um, can get much better casting out of those. If you're on a boat or something, uh, a lot of times you, you're trolling or whatever in a, in a, in a bait casting reel is fine. But to me, an open face spinning reel is the most versatile reel for this type of fishing. Um, I often go to steel leaders if I'm targeting sharks, or anything that's really, really toothy, because they will cut the line. It's not that they're such a big fish, they'll break it, but they'll cut the line. I go to large, either circle or kale hooks. When I'm fishing like this, most of the time what I'm doing is setting up PVC pipes, putting out a tight line out to where I think the fish are running, bringing the rod all the way back up to shore to the first sandbar where it's really shallow, setting the rod in there. i probably got two or three rods out at once. And that's why I want to go to a circle or a kale hook where I don't have to set the hook. If that fish takes it, starts to run with it. As it hits the resistance of the rod tip, the hook will turn in and hook the fish. Um, simply put, I use bigger baits when I'm doing that. Um, I'll use a whole whiting. If I'm targeting sharks, I like to use a whole whiting and I don't mind using a dead one. Um or a dying one's even better. One that's you know just been caught and he's a little bit messed up. Uh, You know, a 4-6 inch whiting uh, is probably not going to be picked up by much else other than a shark. Uh, A lot of times I'll hook them straight through the eyes. So I'll go in one eye and out the other eye. um, And a good tight line with that bait out, it's not likely, you know, sharks will pick up a whole squid. But all kinds of small fish will come in there and peck the hell out of it until it's gone. So that I like to go with it. If I'm going for shark, I like to go for a, a, a full... Fish and sometimes a dead fish better than a live fish because it's less likely to attract smaller species. Um, I've seen people do this, including like not just on TV, like being out uh, down on like some of the passes and stuff uh, in South Texas where they'll go out on a paddle board or a surfboard and they'll go out like 200 yards to a channel or a cut that they know is out there uh, with their bait. So they got their line free lining out and maybe a guy holding it so it doesn't get all tangled and feeding line out. And they'll, they'll set their baits with those. I've never done it, but it does seem functional and it does seem interesting. Um, as far as the basics of actually fishing the surf, it's to me another reason I like it is it's as easy as it gets. Uh, especially if you understand just a few things about the ocean and how the ocean functions. Guts and bars are your friend. And, and the real statement with that is if they're there. Uh, sand, if you think about sand and wind or water, it moves a lot. And I've been to places where you got great guts and bars and then you go back and there's no guts and no bars. So what's a gut and what's a bar? A sandbar most people are familiar with. It's like where you, you go out in the water and all of a sudden it gets real shallow and it might be 20, 30 yards or more out and also you're all, you know, you, you were just up to your neck and now you're standing ankle deep and it's high tide. Right, uh, or knee deep in its high tide. You know, low tide, that thing's sticking up out of the water, and it's like a pool in the middle. That's a bar. That's all a sandbar is. What's a gut? Okay, when you have either the shore and the first sandbar, or the first sandbar and the second sandbar, the deep area in between them, that's the gut. And what I've talked about a lot of times with fishing already, fish relate to structures and they relate to edges. Those guts, those channels are fish highways. Fish move up and down the shoreline in the guts. If you think about a fish, he doesn't want to swim in two and a half inches of water up on top of the bar. He wants the deeper water. Once he gets into that gut, there's, there's cuts in the bars. So a lot, now this is, you gotta, this is where you start some water safety things too. A lot of times you're in a gut. And that gut will get up to your neck or above your head. I've even swam with you know, holding my rod above my head to keep the reel out of the salt water as best I can and swam through the deepest areas of guts because I know there's a sandbar out there. A lot of times, though, there'll be a sandbar. It goes along, and there'll be a cut in the sandbar, and then the sandbar will start again. So if you can imagine, take your two hands and put them in front of you and point them so your fingers are pointing at each other and touch them together, and that's a sandbar, and pull them apart. And the sandbar starts and ends. And that channel in there might be a good place for fish, but it's also a good place to get your ass sucked out to sea. A lot of times that's where you get cross currents, riptides, or undertoes. So you got to learn to read the water a bit and understand when you see water moving differently than it is everywhere else, it's usually a sign of a problem. You get something called an undertow sometimes where you've got the top of the water, let's say, moving from, from west to east, and the bottom underneath there is moving from 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 north to south. And you get pulled down to that lower current that might be moving faster than the upper current. So as I explain this, I want you to understand there's certain things to do from safety precautions and understanding your limits as a swimmer and as a waiter and where the bars are and looking where other people are will tell you, well, the bar goes from there to there because I see people up on it. All right? So in those cuts... Even though that water might be fast or might not be moderately fast, and it can change with the tides, too. It might be safe one minute and not so safe the next. Trust your instincts and the way you feel water. If something seems not right, don't go to that area. Go somewhere else. But the fish will travel through those guts. So a fish is cruising down the coastline, chasing bait fish, whatever, and all of a sudden it comes to this, this current that's going back towards shore. He goes, well, let's go see what's there. And if there's a school of fish and a couple in the front go, the whole damn school goes in there. Now the school starts keeps continuing up and down the coast. Okay, They're cruising up and down. The only way they're really getting back out to the main body of water is through another cut in the bars. Otherwise, they're sitting in that gut for quite a while. That's part of what makes them so good for fishing. Small bait fish being chased and pressured... Find these cuts in the bars and they come in or they come across the top of the bars when there's enough depth. They get in that deeper gut and then they stay to either closer to shore or closer to the bar on the edges. So the, the game fish know that the bait fish are in there. That also brings them in. Got it? So that's why they're so good. My best results have been when there's multiple bars and multiple guts. You have, you go out a little bit and you got a little shallow gut and the first bar. And you got a big, deep gut and a second bar. And a lot of times there's a third bar, but it's just not safe to get out to. It's so far out, and the second gut is so deep, it's not safe to get out to. If it's safe to get out to, a lot of times fishing past that third bar is really effective. But when it's not safe to get out to, that means the the second gut's big. And standing on that second bar and fishing that gut between the first, the second bar and the third bar out, That's been my number one place to catch fish on any beach, anywhere. Here's where it all goes sideways. You get out there, you start walking out in the water, and there's no sandbar. At all. You keep walking until your hat floats, and you don't find a sandbar. You swim out as far as you're comfortable with, and it doesn't get any shallower. Well, then you got to make do with what you have, and you wait as deep as you're comfortable with, and you fish from there. And the fishing probably, not always, but probably won't be as good. Because those channels concentrate the fish's movement. And if your bait's in there, sooner or later something's coming by. So guts and bars are your friend if they're there. On tides, high tide is best, but it's just not that simple. If, you, if high tide's going to be at noon, you say, well, since high tide's best, I'm going to be at noon. What happens at 12.02? The tide has reached its peak, and it begins to go out. Fish come in with the tide, they go out with the tide, they come in with the tide. So you're getting there when the fish are leaving. Now, they're going to be around for quite a while, but they are leaving. And a lot of times I've found, strangely enough, as tides go to low tide, the surf will become rougher. As the tide's coming in, a lot of times the surf becomes calmer. I try to target to be on the beach fishing at least two to four, depending on how long we'll stay there, it'll be all day, four hours before high tide. Now, it doesn't always work with your schedule and, you know, the planet's schedule. But four hours before high tide, and then we'll be fishing two to three hours after high tide. But you're going to find a lot of times to two hours before and two hours after, that four-hour period, to me, has been very, very good to me. I also find that, you know, tide frequency on a daily activity has some sense. In other words, some days there's three tides, some day there's two, and some day there's four. Weird, I know, but it's just how the moon works. So on a four-day high tide, you have four tides pretty much spaced out. Tide comes in, tide goes out, tide comes in, tide goes out. Kind of an evening, morning, morning, evening reversal. I'm not saying it's not good. I was dealing with that pattern when I was in in Sanibel. I did really, really well. One of the better trips I've ever had. But in general, I have found that the days with two tides seem to be more productive than the days with four or three tides. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It takes longer for the tide to come in and longer for the tide to go out. And because of that, the tide is up for longer. And the fish are in for longer. And I, unless there's a storm going on, I've found generally calmer conditions on a two tide versus a four tide day, which also makes sense because the water's being pulled around less. It's not always the case, but I would try if you're planning in advance to look for a two tide day and to be there well before and well after high tide and right through that whole high tide period. I'd look for calm days, check surf reports. Calm water in general for the surf fishermen equals better fishing. You can see fish. You can target fish. And I know this is subjective because when I fished the Atlantic Coast in Florida as a boy, in Jacksonville, that water was never calm the way I'm talking about for the Gulf Coast. You know, Jacksonville, you get a surfboard out there any given day and do a little bit of surfing. Uh, Sanibel Island, you could, you could get out there on the Gulf side on some days with a surfboard and you just kind of sit there bouncing around and never go anywhere. So, rough versus calm is subjective to the location that you're at. But even there, you know, do you got, you know, decent little waves or stuff? You got crashing, you know, angry waves. You get crashing angry waves unless there's some way you can get past them. It's usually not that good. Now, this is where the sandbar is coming again. A lot of times you have really harsh waves in that gut after the first sandbar and coming to shore. You get on that sandbar and past the sandbar, if there's another deep gut, a lot of times what you get are swells. You get these swells, but they're, they don't, they don't cap much, and they don't break much. And, and the, 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 the energy comes across that sandbar, and then it builds up and it breaks to shore. If that's the case, you get out on that bar, things get a lot better. And that's more of an Atlantic Ocean pattern, as I've seen it, than a Gulf Ocean pattern. When there's waves in the Gulf, real waves, generally the whole thing is chocolate milk looking. And then you're looking for a jetty or a pier to get far enough out to get out of that turbidity. And and so you want to look at the surf reports and try to find calm weather patterns and calm surf patterns. Seasonality. What is there and when? There are times when the whiting are just crazy in and something else is probably there feeding on them. There's times when the sand trout or the snook or whatever, depending on where you're at, is heavy and when it's light. And learning those runs will help you time your trips, especially if you don't live 10 minutes away. Most of us don't. Most of us can't just run down to the beach after work any other day and fish. If you can, great. Keep a lot of notes. If you have to plan your trip, and you can go four or five times a year. This stuff gets really important, folks, because it sucks when you've waited two and a half months and you get down to the beach and the water's all chocolate milk and you talk to people and nobody's been catching nothing for a week and a storm's coming and it's low tide. Right? I mean, that just sucks. And then you got to figure out, you got to adapt. And the good news is most places where they're surf fishing – there's a bay or an estuary or something like that nearby, or a pier, and you can go there instead. But it's better if you plan on surf fishing that you'd be you know, able to surf fish. Piers are sometimes the only valid a- 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 option, but to me, they get crowded. And the worse the conditions get, the more crowded they get. Because everybody figures it out and goes, well, the surf's too rough, but this pier goes 100 yards out. Well, if I get out there, I get past all this roughness, and I can at least get into some decent water to fish. Plus, there's pylons and the fish accumulate there and what have you. But a lot of times getting back into a bay or a pass or something like that will find you calmer water and you can be productive. Well, I want to talk real quick on one more thing on safety. I talked about the cow nose rays. Water was clear. Rays are swimming. The rays are no problem unless you grab one or try to ride its back like Steve Irwin did. and These rays weren't that big. These rays were probably two and a half foot across wingtip to wingtip. And from nose to end to tail, probably two and a half, three foot long. And there was bunches of them. There's some littler ones, but most of them were pretty big. They're not a problem. You can see them, they can see you, no problem at all. A lot of times, rays, though, will go down on the bottom and lay on the bottom. And if the water's turbid, you can't see them. If the water's clear, sometimes they go under the sand. That's how they hide. They just kind of shuffle, and the sand comes over their back. If you step on a stingray's back all of a sudden you will feel a very sharp pain that will feel like somebody took a screwdriver, heated up in a fire, and stabbed it in your leg. Because he's going to freak the hell out, and that's the only weapon he has. So he will sting you, and he'll probably leave a big barb stinger in your leg, and you will not be happy, and it will ruin your day. You won't die, you know, unless you get a giant one to stab you in the heart like Steve did. You're not going to die or anything. You're not going to fall over in, in anguish and be in suffering and misery for 20 or 40 you know, months but you're not going to have a good day from that point forward. It's probably going to end your day. You may very well end up at the ER. Um you know, or at least you're going to end up applying your own first aid and being very very unhappy. There is some venom in it. It is painful. It does suck. I've never personally experienced that type of pain from a from a stingray. I've never actually been stung, but I've witnessed other people have been stung. Guys I know are pretty tough guys, and I'm telling you, it sucks. Now here's the thing. There's an easy solution. When you're anywhere raised may be, and the conditions are such that they may be under the sand, when you walk, just shuffle. Instead of picking your feet up and stepping down, walk with your feet kind of shuffling along the bottom. If you do that, you're going to kick them in the face, the butt, the ass, the, the, the fin, and you're going to swim away. And I've, I've not, I can't say I've stepped into them many times, but I've done it a few and I've never been stung when I've done it that way. And everybody that I know that's been stung, I've only seen it done two ways. Walking, tromping around in the water when calm, sandy, loose bottom stuff where the damn rays are and stepping on one. I've seen that twice. And some dumbass that decides he's going to jack around with one he's caught on his line and has to screw around with it and he ends up with one in the forearm. I saw that once. Otherwise, I've not seen it much at all. When waiting, shuffle, if there's rays around. Uh, A little bit beyond cut baits, uh, I like to use white bait, as they call it, or thread thins. Uh, Pinfish, pigfish, I don't care if it's little and and other fish will eat it, I'll put it on the line and try it. Um, I generally hook those types of fish through the bottom of the mouth and out the nostril. So it's going through both the bottom and the top lip. Or i hook them behind the dorsal fin and above the spine. If you hook it in its spine, it will die. Um, Cast nets are great. I kind of talked about that already. Um, I've seen a lot of people uh, at the shore throwing cast nets where there are no fish, where you can see there are no fish and surprise not catching any fish. Um, you got to kind of learn to throw a cast net. There's a couple different ways to do it. I like to throw smaller nets. Four to six foot diameter nets, and with a net like that, I use the tooth in the weight in your teeth method uh, where I've got most of the cast net over my left arm. I've got my right arm holding it almost like you're throwing a frisbee, and I've got one of the weights in my teeth. And as I throw, I let go. People say, Well, what if you forget to let go? Don't forget to let go. I'm, I, I I, I do very well throwing cast nets like that. Um, a lot of times we'll catch thread thins. Which are a type of, you know, small bait fish or pig fish or small whiting, all of those make good bait. Small sand fleas and crabs make good bait and you can generally catch them uh, right there at the beach. They make like these metal rakes you drag through the wet sand and then you kinda of rinse it off. And if there's sand fleas there they'll be right at where the water's edge, especially if there's like a um, like a little step down. That's always a good spot if sand fleas are around. So the water comes up and laps back, and and right where the water laps back, there's a drop off of like six inches in the sand. Right into that ledge, you bring those rakes, or you can just stick your hands in there from both sides, dig real deep. You feel them moving around. Sand fleas look like, I don't know, kind of a weird little, you'll know it if you see it. You can Google it if you want to know what they look like, but they're a little type of crab. Uh, hook through the belly, permit and pompano, love them. Other fish will take them, but if there's permit or pompano around, they're candy to them. Uh, any kind of small crab or something like that, fiddler crabs and what have you, very good bait for a lot of different fish. Redfish love crabs. Um, when it comes to artificials, uh, I am really a fan of a, of a bait called the DOA or 10-on-arrival um, shrimp that's got a weight built into it hook built into it they're kind of expensive but especially in calm water when you throw that thing it looks just like a live shrimp just kind of hovering and floating down to the bottom And a little jig action it's probably the best artificial out there uh i'll use anything that looks like a small silver fish if the water's right a lot of times i see guys throwing artificials in a really rough surf and that 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 lure just not going to run white it just won't um any type of spoon slabs, those things will work well. Tail spinners, uh, it's all subjective to what the fish are feeding on. If you have fish just lighten up the water, right? I mean, they're just lighting it up. They're eating, they're hitting bait fish, and you don't have any bait fish. Get something shiny that's about the size of the bait fish you can tell they're hitting, and start putting a spinner or a slab through there, and you're probably going to pick up fish or a topwater. Uh, it doesn't really matter. If it looks like what they're eating, they're probably going to hit it when that feeding mode. Live shrimp I use a little bit but I've not found that I catch much more on live shrimp than cut shrimp uh, unless you're in an area where there are a lot of sea trout not sand trout but sea trout a lot of times sea trout or wheat fish whatever you want to call them they'll they'll hammer live shrimp and they just won't touch cut bait um, the way I like to fish for sea trout when I know they're in areas, but the water's calm. This is anything from off a boat in a back bay to a calm surf, wherever they are, there's a little popping cork. So you've got a popping cork and then you got like about a one to two foot line behind it and a shrimp back there, especially a live shrimp or a DOA, artificial shrimp. And you kind of ploop, ploop. And every time you ploop that cork and just kind of jig it forward and take up the slack, That that cork makes a noise that looks like a fish hitting the surface, and that bait behind the cork kind of goes up in the air and starts to sink back down. And live shrimp behind a popping cork when when sea trout are around is just absolutely bang on awesome. I want to talk a little bit about brackish rivers and bays and things like that. Um, There's a lot in common. I do pretty much the same stuff that I was talking about, especially if I'm in a place where it's common, I can wade. And then it, it, you know, a lot of times you get into situations, if you have barrier islands and things like that, um, where the, the ocean's too rough, you get on the other side of the barrier island in a harbor or a, a bay or what have you, and it may be brackish, it may be fully salt, and you get on that back side of the island, and you, and there's, there's a beach back there, and you can wade and fish, and everything's calm. And sometimes it's really good back there, and sometimes it's still not. Uh, it's called fishing, not catching. But you can do that. On piers, I fish almost identical on a pier in that type of water as I do a pier on the surf. You know, it's cut baits or live baits and tight lines out. And what I like about piers, especially when they're not overpopulated, is you can set up a couple rods, a couple different baits, fanned out in a couple different areas with the rods set up against the pier. You know, either your bait holder or your circle hooks on. Fish pretty much hook themselves. or you see a bite, pick the rod up, set the hook. Um, and they can be a good time and you can meet cool people that you wouldn't have met otherwise. And I don't mind people. I just don't like too many of them. And I don't like dumb ones. If the surf is clearly going from, from, from east to west and I've got a line out to the east, you know, and it's, it's, it's starting to drift and it's about dead in front of me. Don't, don't cast over it. Right, Or if you're up to the east of me, don't cast right where I just casted. Both of our lines are drifting down grade together. Uh, if somebody hooks a fish, get your line out of the water. Get get out of their way at least. Um, most people are courtesy, courteous on piers, and there's some peer etiquette that you learn by going there. But some people are dumbasses, and I don't like peers when they're really crowded because if you get enough people together, the law of averages gives you a few dumbasses. And one or two dumbasses can ruin everything for everybody else. Now, with piers and docks and things like that, forget everything I said about high tide, think about low tide. Crabbing. Crabbing is, especially in the summer and in season, so dependable in some areas. Uh, when I worked for MCI, we uh, had a lot of work we did in New Orleans. I could never probably remember where this hotel was, but there was a hotel in Shalmay. God knows if it's even there after Hurricane Katrina. This is pre-Hurricane Katrina. And the shrimp boats would come right in there and all. And I would stay at this hotel. And I think the hotel was 40 bucks a day, which, you know, my per diem more than covered. And I was working night shift. So I would work from about um, 8 o'clock at night-ish until about 4 o'clock in the morning. And then I would come home to the hotel, and I'd go to sleep, and I'd get up the next day. And I'd fish for – I'd fish – period but i didn't catch a lot of fish there but i'd crab and i you know every i'd be there every week and i'd be there for a week and then i'd go home for the weekend and i'd come home like every week with a big cooler i mean a big cooler full of blue crabs and i mean it was just that easy it was just that consistent so what's my method for catching blue crabs on piers and docks and this you want your bays your estuaries your brackish water rivers things like that where the water doesn't move real fast I've never done good crabbing in the ocean. I know it can be done in certain areas. When I was a kid in Jacksonville, occasionally we would do good netting crabs. There was a big pier at Jack's Beach, and at low tide, you'd end up with these little pools around the pier's pylons, and you could see the little flippers of the crabs hiding in the sand, and you could dip net them out of there. That's about the only way I've ever got them at the ocean, and we caught blue crabs and leopard crabs like that. but everywhere else i've done it better in like the bays the backwaters and things like that what i'm about to tell you is legal in many areas and not legal in others especially in a lot of preserves and things like that they only allow dip net crabbing they don't allow baits and they don't allow traps and things like that i don't use traps i have found crab traps to be pretty pointless unless they're the big ones that are baited and you catch lots of crabs in one trap and you Put them out with a float ball, and you come back hours or days later and, and collect your crabs. What I'm talking about when I say I found them to be pretty useless, I'm talking about the ones that you drop to the bottom, you put a bait in them, the crabs come in, you pull them up, and the trap closes when you pull them up. i, I found found fast water messes them up. Uh, crabs are afraid of them. You get a lot of crabs in there you don't really want. Um, my method is simple. A string, a weight, chicken, and a dip net. That's it. That's the whole thing. And a good size, like one ounce, two ounce weight, to keep that bait down on the bottom, especially if the water's moving a bit. Some string. And buy the cheapest chicken you can get your hands on. Wings. They used to sell backs and necks, and that's what I used to buy, but I haven't found chicken backs and necks very often in the grocery store anymore. So wings are about the cheapest thing. You can get a big old pack of wings for four or five bucks. And you tie the string around the the wing between the drumette and the forearm part. Right in that joint is a great place where they can't really get out of it. Uh, then pull it off on you. Another thing you can do is you take your knife and put your knife through the uh, in the forearm where there's two bones. Poke a hole in there. Put the string through that hole. Tie that, and then tie the excess to the to the joint as well. You put your lines off. Time to the dock, and I'll put out as many lines as I can get away with. And just sit there and watch. And you'll see the line kind of go taunt a little bit. And there's a crab down there pulling on it. And you just pull him up really, really slow. And you should get him to where you can see him. If he's a crab you want, put the net underneath him and throw his ass in the cooler. That's it. If you have a little bitty crab kind of being a pain in the ass, you can net him and take a little walk and pitch his ass somewhere away so he doesn't sit there and just continually eat on your bait. Because occasionally you get one that's kind of a pain like that. Now... This is going to be worth the podcast if you ever go crabbing right now and not getting bit by crabs and not having crabs be a pain in the ass. You want a net that's a good, you know, three to five-foot handle dip net, big ones like you net big fish out of a boat with. Generally, like you're like a metal aluminum-looking pole and ring, and, you know, they're a couple foot in diameter. They're the best ones for it. And they usually have, like, green mesh, and, you know, it's about one-inch holes in the mesh. They're also about two foot deep. All The reason this net is good is because you can, even if you're crabbing by yourself, hold the crab with your left hand if you're right-handed, bring the net underneath the crab, and then bring the crab to the net and get the net deep enough, the crab doesn't realize it's there. And by the time he does and he lets go and you bring the net up, he goes down in the net. And if you have a short-handled net, they see the net and they let go a lot quicker. Okay, so that's why you want the long-handled net. If that crab goes two feet down inside that net, he's going to be all tangled up, pissed off, and claws out. And the place you have to grab to get him out of there is the bottom of the net, where he is, and he's pissed off and wants to bite the shit out of you. So, you take a piece of string, and you basically tie a ponytail in your net. So the crab can only go in there a little bit. So it makes the net really shallow. And then like half the net is in this ponytail configuration. To keep it that way, you might even tie a second string on it. So look like a hippie ponytail. All right. Now you dip net the crab. What do you got to grab onto? The ponytail. It's like a handle. So you turn the net upside down over the cooler and you shake the shit out of the crab. And he falls his ass in the cooler on top of the ice. He looks up at you all angry and throws his claws up. And then you just close the cooler, and you know about fifteen minutes later, he's kind of literally chilled out. And that's my crabbing method. And everywhere that that's legal, if there's crabs, it's absolutely deadly for catching crabs, which is probably why it's not legal in some stuff, some areas. Now, when you're in the bays and the piers and stuff like that, and the, the backwaters, I'm telling you. It's true everywhere, but there are really fish-coming runs. Seasonal runs and just timed runs. You can be out sitting on a pier for an hour and a half, not getting a bite, and all of a sudden there's fish everywhere for 30 minutes. Every time you hit the, rot, the the stuff in the water, you're pulling fish in, pulling fish in, pulling fish in, and then they're gone. And then they're back, and then they're gone. and And the thing that makes that important is, one, the seasonal runs, you want to know that they're happening and know what bait and tackle to have. And the other thing is, When you're out there and you're spending a day or two camping or whatever and you're fishing those type of situations and all of a sudden that runs on, you want to have your gear ready to go. And when you see that action start to pick up, you want to get those lines in the water and and, and make the most of it because it could be five minutes, 50 minutes, or five hours and you just don't know. So when those runs come, make the most of them. Boats are great for the backwaters and stuff like that, but that's another show, so I'm not really going to talk about them today. Just say they can really enhance your ability to fish bays and, and estuaries and things like that. Um, the best way I know to catch snook, for instance, in Florida is in the bays, and you go back into the mangroves, and you use things like white bait and pinfish, and you pull the boat where you're close enough to get to the edge of the mangroves, but you're not enough to scare the snook, and you pitch those fish with a sidearm cast as close to the edge of those mangroves as you can, no bait, and as soon as that snook takes it, you pull them out of there. Well, you can't do that really without a boat. But again, I'm going to talk about boats on another day. Um, I do want to point this out, though, another safety consideration. If you are fishing brackish water, especially in the south, we have things called Alligators. And they generally don't spend a lot of time in salt water, but many of them spend a lot of time in brackish water. And if you're waiting in brackish water, you really need to pay attention to what you're doing. And if that water's murky, don't do it, because they will eat the hell out of you. Um, the American alligator is not as aggressive toward human beings as the African or Australian crocodile. It doesn't help you at all when one latches onto your ass. And they will do it, and they do do it, and it does happen. And the further you get towards swampy, brackish conditions, the more you also get the potential for snakes. And the primary snake that you have in those situations is a water moccasin. Water moccasins, I've never seen a water moccasin in the water come after somebody. I've seen them swim towards somebody, a person freak out. I've seen people shoot them because they were swimming toward their boat, and they were going to come get me. I think you're an idiot if you, if you really believe that. But... As you're getting in and out of water on shore, they are a snake that tends to stand their ground. And if you don't see them and they see you, they are likely to bite you. Okay, If you see them and leave them alone, they're not. Some people call them a chicken snake. And the reason they call them a chicken snake is they their stupid rednecks play chicken with a water moccasin. Because the water moccasin, or cottonmouth, and this is where the cottonmouth comes from, you see it sitting on the bank, and you approach it, and it's sitting there, and it'll put its head up in the air. And you get too close, instead of hissing or striking, it just opens its mouth. And its mouth is snow white. And it's saying, do you see me? Do you see this? If you keep jacking with me, I'm going to bite you. And then the redneck backs up, and the snake closes its mouth. So he gets a little bit close this time, and it opens his mouth, and he gets a little bit more aggressive. And he sits there and plays chicken with the freaking snake. Don't do that. Generally speaking, you're not wade fishing when it's still cool out in the spring, very cold still, but just warm enough for the snakes to come out. This is more of a lakes and rivers thing, but I'm going to say it here, too. The most dangerous time of the year is that time of year for water moccasins. If you're in the south where they are. What happens is those snakes burrow in the mud to, to bermate. Snakes don't hibernate. They bermate. It's like half hibernation. They get coated in mud, okay? It starts to warm up, and that snake comes out, and he's cold, and he's slow, and he's not really sure about what's going on yet. He's kind of like you are before your first cup of coffee. He sits there on that muddy bank, <sighs> and he waits for the sun to come to warm him up because he is cold-blooded, right? Right? He is exothermic, not endothermic. And as the sun begins to warm him up, he starts to feel better and move a little bit. If you come along before he's warmed up, not only is he slow, he's also coated in mud so it's harder for you to see him, and he may never give you the courtesy of that gaping mouth to tell you to leave him the hell alone till you step on his back and he bites you. So this is not that likely in these situations, but the further you go in and the more brackish gets closer to fresh, the more potential there is for that guy, too. But alligators in Florida, in Georgia swamps, Alabama swamps, Louisiana swamps, and some of these estuaries where you've got this brackish water, they're there, and they tend to get bigger the more brackish they get into the water, a little saltwater croc thing going on or something, I guess. Um, I want to talk now toward the end here about safety gear and comfort gear. Um, I believe that you should carry needle-nose pliers and hemostats with you when you're sore fishing. There's a lot of things they can do to help you get a hook out. They can also help you get a hook out of yourself and get things that are stuck in your skin and your body out of you, especially the hemostats. Uh, In addition to like good quality hemostats, a little pair of tweezers may not be a bad idea either because different tools for different jobs. Really consider getting a good fish glove. Um, whether it's just a good heavy-duty leather glove that you're going to end up throwing away after a couple trips. Uh, my buddy Hal Dodd liked to use cheap, heavy-duty baseball gloves when he was taking out lots of sandbass. It's kind of a different scenario, but um, a good heavy leather glove or one of those gloves that are more for cleaning fish that look like chain mail or the ones that are made out of like a nylon that look like that. Because there is a little fish that you're probably going to catch sooner or later, that can be a real pain, legitimately a pain. I mentioned this on the other show, but I have several, and if you ever meet me and you want to see them, ask me, and I'll show you several parts on my hands where I have what looks like a light-colored mole. And those are from either hard-head or gaff-top-sail catfish where I've been finned, and every one of them is from a small fish. The big ones are easy to deal with. The smaller they are, the more likely they are to flip around and fin you. I don't use a glove, and I accept that I can get stabbed, and I've been stabbed a few times, and they go in you like no freshwater catfish does. I had one go in my finger. That damn thing had to be almost a half inch into my finger, and it was a little bitty fish. He probably only had an inch of fin, and he had it halfway buried in my hand. You could feel it in there. They're very, and the smaller they are, the sharper they are. And there's something about that saltwater catfish slime that's either poisonous or toxic in some way, and it hurts. It's not, it doesn't hurt the same as only poking you with a poker going away. There's a residual pain that it causes, and it will change the color of your skin like a freaking tattoo. If you don't want that to happen, a good glove is the best way to, to deal with that. Um, I've seen a lot of people think, well, what I'll do, I'll take my needle nose pliers. And I'll grab the hook and I'll tilt the fish and I'll shake him off the hook. <laughs> and then they end up right in the, like, the second, uh, joint knuckle of the, of their, their, their plier hand. That little fish is freaking out because he doesn't know what the hell you're doing. He flips around and one of those three spines comes up and gets you in the hand. Um, the, the, the only way to be sure is a good glove and get a hold of the fish. Now, Holding catfish barehanded is something I do all the time. And again, the bigger the catfish, the easier it is to do. And once they get to a certain size, the fin's not even very sharp anymore. It's that little fish. It's that 4-inch little fish to 8-inch little fish that will fin the shit out of you. But the way you do it's the same no matter what they are. The thumb and forefinger go underneath the two side fins, and the palm pushes down the back fin. This works right up until that fish decides he wants to lock his back fin up. And then you've really got to be careful. You've got to kind of hover over it, or you can come in from the belly side and go underneath the side fins. But if you do that, you have nowhere near the grip, and the belly gives more, so you have to kind of take the the fin on one side of the fish, goes between your, your FU finger and your ring finger, and then the left The thumb goes underneath the other fin, and you come in through the belly like that. Once you get a grip on them, you can unhook them. You even got to be careful with these damn things when you let them go, though. I've seen people take one off perfectly, have no problem, and go to pitch it over like a pier or a boat. And when they go to pitch it, the damn fish flips in the air, and as it goes away, it gives them an FU, and it, it gets them in the hand. It's not the end of the world. I'm just saying it does hurt, and you can avoid it if you want to. And, and, you know, there's no shame in putting a glove on to take one of the damn things off. This is another reason I like to use snell hooks. A lot of times when you catch these catfish, especially as they start to get a little bit bigger, they'll swallow the hook. Salt water is amazingly corrosive, and fish like that are amazingly resilient. And if you're not using a snell hook, you just cut the line, you know, as as far into the fish's mouth as you can and let it go. Um, But if you're using a snell hook, after you've cut the line, throw away your extra piece of nylon, and just throw another Snell hook on. It takes a lot less time than tying a hook on. Uh, the other thing is sometimes these fish will really slime up a leader, uh, the, especially the gaff top sails, and it's just gross, and you decide you want to just change out that the hook and even get it out. Again, it's really easy to change with a Snell hook. Um, and if you have a little freaking demon one on there, and he's being a little ass, and you just don't want to deal with him... He, you just hold the snap swivel, you take it off, you let his ass go with the damn snell in him. There's plenty of those, you're not gonna hurt the population. So that's, that's just some thoughts on that. It's the number one way I've seen people actually injured. Not really bad, but injured when they're surf fishing is those damn cats. First aid kit, have a good first aid kit. You know, people are always stepping on either, you know, some piece of glass that some idiot busted and left in the water or a sharp shell or a piece of coral or a barnacle and just having the first aid kit to deal with stuff like that. I've seen some pretty nasty cuts in the bottom of feet from stuff like that. Have aloe gel as part of your first aid kit. Burns, cuts, scrapes, it's, it's the best thing in the world to ease initial pain. Think about maybe getting jellyfish sting treatment. I have a link for you in today's show notes. It's two products that you can get on Amazon.com. It's called Blue Bottle Buster. It's the best two I've found. One is for general jellyfish, and one is for Portuguese man-of-war. If you're going to go to a place where there are no Portuguese man-of-war, you don't have to worry about it. You only need the other one. Um, They do have a little bit different of uh, a toxin that attacks you, so you would want both of them if you're in a place where both of them could be. Most jellyfish things are no big deal. Uh, we don't have ones that kill you like they do in Australia or anything like that. So, uh, generally it's just pain. But a, a man o' war sting, Portuguese man o' war, can be nasty. And, um, those things can have tentacles that are ungodly long. A jellyfish can be way the hell over there and you can still get stung. Um, they are. Occasionally common on the Atlantic coast, especially. I remember in Florida seeing them. They have this balloon-like structure to their body, washed up on shore. I remember seeing people stung by them. Um, a lot of the like the cabbage jellies and stuff like that. They're just not that big a deal. They're they're just not. Um, and a lot of times when you see them washed up on shore and they're dead and everybody's afraid of them. If you look at them, all their tentacles are gone. The, I'm talking again about the cabbage heads, um, but they do sting. I've been stung in the lips. Uh, one time I was cast netting and there was a small jellyfish and the cast net pretty much shredded him and I didn't know he was in there. And when I put that weight in my mouth, it stung my lips and my face and my tongue and it wasn't a big deal. Some people react more than others. I don't know if the sting away stuff would be usable or like that. Uh, but I can tell you that's not a place you want to get stung. So if you're cast netting, you want to think a little bit more about it, but, you know, do think about dealing with jellyfish uh is at least a possibility when you're wade fishing. Um, good knives and a cleaning board if you're keeping fish. I think a lot of people don't think about this. I'll just I'll just clean the fish like I do in the woods. Okay, well in the woods you have rocks and trees and even the ground it might be a grassy area or something like that or a little patch of clover. The beach you have sand. So if you try to clean a fish on the beach without a cleaning board, you get sand everywhere. And fish are slimy and sticky, and it sticks to them, and it gets in their meat, and it sucks. So a good cleaning board, either one with a clip or what I usually use to clean fish, I use a piece of 2x10, untreated, of course, with a big old nail nailed into it. And I'll just take the fish, and I'll just push their eye through that nail. That makes a great filleting board. Or even just a big piece of wood. You don't have to have necessarily a nail in it. Uh, But the ones they make with the clamps where you can clamp the head or clamp the tail, those work really well as well. Again, consider a good cleaning glove just because of the slime factor, and you're more likely to cut yourself if you slip. Um, Those are really good ideas to have. A really good cooler and lots of ice. Generally, I take two coolers. I take one with some ice in it and drinks and stuff like that and, and whatever, and I take another one. I completely fill it with bags of ice. So that I can replenish, cause that, that'll, that cooler will keep. And that way I can replenish my, my cooler with drinks and all. And then I can put the fish in the first cooler that was just ice as I get closer to leaving. Cause I try to keep my fish on a stringer if that's possible, depending on where I'm fishing and what's going on. A lot of times, uh, conversely, when there's a, I'm catching a lot of fish and I want to make sure I have the freshest fish possible, they go straight on the ice. One way you can make sure that you really keep a good cold cooler is by the Cubes Ice, like 5-pound block, 10-pound block of ice. A cooler with those across the bottom will do a much better job of holding ice for you. Probably the best cooler I've ever seen is a Yeti. They're expensive. I have one because I got it on my barter blanket. Um, it is amazing how long those coolers will hold ice. But the big white ones like Academy Sports and Outdoors sells Uh, good thick wall, four day coolers. Those work pretty daggone good, but lots and lots of ice. Uh, and this is what I have in the show notes for the next one. Water, 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 and water. Um, when you go to the ocean, everything is sticky and salty. And the only thing that gets it to go away is fresh water. You need it to rinse your reels out. You need to rinse your gear with it. You need to rinse your hands with it, your face with it, your feet with it. Uh, fish that you've cleaned, Uh, generally it's good to rinse them with fresh water. Uh, it's just priceless. And when I first started surf fishing a lot here in Texas, I thought, I know I'll go to Walmart and I'll get some of those big five gallon water jugs for like 18 bucks. That'll be good. And I filled two of them with water and I put them in the back of my truck and I drove my happy ass all the way down to Freeport beach from Arlington at the time. And I got there and both of them were empty and the vibrations in the truck alone on the highway for that drive. And I wasn't off-road. This is highway interstate. Caused the seams to rupture, and both of them leaked out, and I'll never buy one again. Um, you can use a gas can, and they're pretty damn bulletproof. Probably don't want to drink that water, but, you know, a couple gas cans full of water, that's 10 gallons. But the best thing are the big blue water drums, 15-gallon drums. And it's not overkill to take two of them with you. The ones that Stephen Harris recommends for fuel storage. 15 gallons, two of those is 30 gallons of fresh water. You probably sell people for a dollar a piece the right to rinse their hands off with fresh water at some of the, you know, when you don't have a lot of, you know, you don't have fresh water supply somewhere around. So water is key. Not just drinking water, but cleaning water, bulk water, sunblock. The water fries you like nothing else. People say, well, I, don't, "I don't sunburn." I'm out in the garden every day with no shirt on and I've never had sunburn in my life. You put them on a boat or take them to the shore and that water's hit the, the sun's hitting them, plus it's bouncing off that water and hitting them a second time, it's like a solar oven and they turn red, crispy red. Um I'm a big believer that the sun is not the cause of most malignant and dangerous skin cancers that good exposure to the sun actually prevents skin cancer when it comes to the most dangerous forms. Okay? The lesser dangerous forms can be caused by sun exposure. But I also believe that excessive sunburn can cause all types of skin cancers. And every time you get a severe sunburn, your odds of eventually developing a skin cancer increase. So while I'm not big on the SPF 45 on a daily basis, every time the sun hits my body, because I'm the guy that not usually without a shirt, because you just get too sticky in the heat without a shirt on in in the garden. But you know I'm out in muscle shirts or you know short sleeve shirts and, and and shorts on a daily basis in the garden myself, and I'm tan and I don't burn, and and I think that's good for you. But when you're getting that intense solar radiation over prolonged periods of time, protect your skin. Um, and that's another reason to have the aloe gel. So not just for sunburn, you've been out, you've had your sun lotion on, you've made, you maybe tanned up a bit, but you may be just a little hair of a burn here and there. You don't really feel bad. You don't feel stingy yet or whatever, but you, you rinse off, you get all of that stuff off of you. You're done for the day. You rub the aloe gel in and it just, your skin stays healthier. And you don't end up, I've seen old salts, they, their skin looks like leather. And I don't think that's good for your health. I really don't. And I think that aloe gel is probably the best thing you can use for that. Um, also, bait buckets for your live bait and bait containers. And I have next to bait containers, avoid the chomp. You can get little coolers that completely seal that float. And you can tie a string on your belt or your pants or a wrist thing, and that thing can sit there and float next to you, And you can sit out there and catch 20 or 30 fish before you have to come back to shore if you want to. And you'll be fine. Don't be the stupid dumbass with a pocket full of bait. Don't do it. I will confess, occasionally when I'm fishing, I'll take one or two shrimp, and I'll put them in my pocket when the water's clear, and it's not turbid, and it's not rough, and I can see what's around me. That is the limit of my dumbassness at the ocean. I've seen people reach into a cooler, grab two handfuls of stinky dead shrimp, put them into a pocket in a bathing suit, and wade out into water in the evening when it's stirred up and murky. If that person is bit by a shark, I would do what I can to help them, but part of me feels like you're a dumbass and you deserve that. I know some of you are rolling your eyes thinking people can't be that stupid, but they are. It happens and it happens somewhat frequently. Um, and, and that, I mean, that's all I can say about it is that does occur and it would really be a good idea that you not be the person that does that. I have talked quite a bit about things like sharks, as you get into brackish water alligators, not getting yourself in from gaff top sales, sunburns, cuts, hooks, things like that. All the things that you know you have a safety briefing on I don't want anybody to be intimidated from fishing because of those things though I'm bringing them up so you're aware of them because awareness is ninety percent of avoidance if you're aware that the little fish can stab the shit out of you well you're less likely to be stabbed and it's not by on, on that note even as I'm giving you some reasons not to freak out. It's not just those dad-gone catfish that can poke the shit out of you. A lot of saltwater fish are more likely to fin you really good than freshwater fish. And they all do seem to have more of a lasting pain. Again, not, oh, I'm gonna die, but a pain. A con- Like, that's not, that's not the same as being poked with a pin. A pinfish. On that note, pinfish. Little tropical looking cute little fish with little stripes and markings on them and a big old eye and a real big dorsal fin with razor sharp little pins while they call them pinfish. Pinfish and pigfish will stab the shit out of you. So when you catch something you've never seen before thinking about, think about what you're doing before you jack with it. You bass fishermen, I've seen bass fishermen (laughs) reach down and grab a freaking Spanish mackerel by the bottom lip and when they let go they have a red crescent on their thumb from the teeth. I've seen people bit by a toadfish. Toadfish is something you usually don't catch in the ocean. You catch them in the brackish water, but it's a little fish. It looks like a freaking toad. They're ugly, and they have four big canines, and I've seen people jerk around with them and get stabbed in the finger. Um, it's a pretty good bite. Just don't do dumb stuff and be aware that things can cause you pain and think before you act, and you probably avoid it, and then have what you need because none of it, other than having your leg taken off by a bull shark, is really life-altering, you know, think about when you're fishing with other people. When you're on a pier, expect that everybody around you is stupid. Because that way you don't end up with a hook in your ear, or your eyeball, or your lip. I've seen that too. I saw a guy plumb knocked out with a bait casting sinker. Uh, where a guy came behind him and whipped it and it hit him up under the ear and knocked. didn't leave him laying there for hours or nothing, but put him flat out on the thing and he didn't move for a half a second. Finally, started coming, and of, we you know, got him, and he ended up being okay, and his buddy made him go to, uh, get checked out. But just assume that people around you don't know what they're doing. And as they earn your confidence, give them a little more trust. Think. Don't be afraid of sharks. Don't be afraid. Of, like I said, we saw that shark. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. When I was at Sanibel, Travis Fox, the guy that's working with David, uh, 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 David Crawford on making lights out into a movie came and hung out with us and we're standing there wearing polarized glasses. Boy, there's something I left out. Good set of polarized sunglasses or I wear prescription glasses. So I have a flip clip on flip ups that are polarized. You can see so much better in the water with those. So we're sitting there and we're watching all these countos race around and all. And we're watching a couple people swimming and we see a, a shark and you just you can see the shadow and you can see it moving down. Probably six, seven foot shark probably a black tip, could have been a bull, could have been a lemon, just cruise right down the beach in between people. And uh, we're saying, hey, there, there it is. And, and Dorothy goes, do you think you should tell them? I'm like, no, they'll freak out. They're better off not knowing that thing's thing. You can just tell he's just cruising through. It happens. It's not that big a deal. Don't swim in murky water. If you have bad wounds where you're bleeding, don't swim when there's sharks around. Don't swim at night. Don't put bait in your pocket. And you're more likely to get hit by a gravel truck than you are to get bit by a shark, even when you're in the water. So I don't want any of these things to scare you. I'm just trying to give you basic common sense, safety and first aid uh, knowledge. Lots of water. Bring food. Um, I would also tell you brief some stuff. like, Even though I'm paleo, I always make sure I have some like some saltine crackers or something like that. The salt and uh, the carbohydrates, if you get kind of worn down, can kind of bring you back around. Don't overdo it. Take breaks. Um, have a, if you're going to camp, really think about what you're doing. Have lots of gear with you and have plan B. Plan B is go to a hotel and get an air conditioner. Um, the biggest injury risk, in spite of everything I said, is probably some form of heat exhaustion. You stand in the water all day. You don't really feel like you're losing a lot of uh, fluids. You don't feel that hot, but you get dehydrated just the same. You do those things, you're going to be okay. It's it's a lot of fun. Again, I'd like to try to set something up with a bunch of you guys down there on the Texas coast doing this. And uh, if you've never tried it before, give it a shot. You probably know more than you need to know now to have a good day at the surf. Again, make sure you check the tide charts and the surf conditions. Try to go with calm water. Use the lightest equipment that will get the job done. The lightest weights that will hold the line taut so you can feel what's going on. Try a variety of cut baits. If you have guts and bars, fish, the, you know, fish from the from the bars into the guts. Try to time your tide so you're there before high, through high, and a little bit after high tide. Pay attention to the runs. Talk to people. Find out what's working, what's running. Don't oversize your gear. You have a great time. And you might come home with a cooler full of fish and or crabs. One of my favorite things to do used to be to go at low tide, catch crabs till the tide came in, and then start fishing. So you can structure things however you want with that, it's been Jack Spierkoe with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do.